by it. Uh, Lord God, we worship you because you are a loving God. You are a giving God. You are a saving God. You are a rescuing God. We don't deserve any of that rescue, any of that love, any of that saving. And it's by your sheer grace that we can know you and have a relationship with you. Thank you for the hope that you give to anybody, no matter their race, no matter their financial background, no matter their moral background or lack of moral background. Uh, You are a God for everyone, and whosoever would turn to you uh, has an opportunity to know you and be saved by you, and we're grateful for that. Thank you, Jesus, for killing death on our behalf through your cross and through your resurrection. Would you help and empower and motivate us to pursue your mission to help as many people in our lives that we care about uh, find heaven in their destiny instead of hell in their destiny? And would you use, empower, and mobilize us towards that end as a church family? Lord God, I pray that every word I would say today would be for your glory alone and not mine. I need your help. I need your power. I need your anointing in this moment to teach your words well and clearly and accurately. Uh, Through Christ we pray. Amen. Dave, come up and read today's scripture. Good morning. Got some uh, short verses here, short but powerful verses for John uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, and John chapter 3, verses 36. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son, the only Son of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thank you very much, Dave. Today we're... Series, which is currently called Show Me What the Bible Says About. Series is loosely based upon the New City Catechism material, which is all about teaching Bible doctrine basics uh, to kids and adults. There's a kids' version, there's an adult version. This is a free app. I highly encourage you to download to your phone, whether you're an Android or Apple person. It's there, it's free, it's a great opportunity. And it's really solid uh, material to sort of learn the Bible basics, Bible theology. Now, what we're looking at today, I would say and argue that it's probably... Biggest question, period, that you can ask. Biggest question in the world is simply, what happens after death? What happens after death? That's the title for today's message. Uh, Have you asked this question at some point? I'm sure you have. What happens when you die? That's a critical moment in your life, if you think about it. And as it turns out, the answer or the idea, basically, people have so many different opinions and ideas about this question There's so many ideas, there's as many ideas about it as there are people. And basically, there's a lot of people that sort of have their own take on it, and they have their own opinion, and they kind of bank on that opinion about it, uh, about what happens to you when your pulse stops. Uh, For most people, at some point, just be reminded, your pulse will stop. That's going to happen. For example, though, about these different ideas, if you're an atheist, maybe you've been an atheist in the past, or maybe you're an atheist today, uh, we're glad you're here, by the way. 
But if you're an atheist, you are someone that does not believe there is a God, that God does not exist. Therefore, there's no miracles, there's no miraculous stuff, there's no spiritual world, there's no afterlife, okay? So if you're an atheist, what do you think happens to you when you die? Well, you just stop. You're, you basically cease to exist. You don't have a soul that travels anywhere as an atheist. You just kind of become, for lack of a better analogy, worm food. Your body is returned, and the materials that your body makes up is returned to, to, the, to the biomass at large, and that's it. So no God, no afterlife, no judgment day before God. What a relief, no judgment day. Don't have to worry about how you've lived your life morally or immorally. And, and atheists will often you know, use advertisements like this one. Basically, you know, there's probably no God, so now stop worrying and enjoy your life. They use that angle to attract more adherence to their atheistic religion. Then you have other people. Uh, very often, they will call themselves Christians, uh, but in, in reality, we would lump them into the category called the universalists. And universalists believe that everyone's going to heaven. Everybody. We're in. We're, in, we're good. Maybe not the worst criminals like Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. Maybe not them. But, you know, God is love. Therefore, God loves everyone. Therefore, everyone's in. Takes the pressure off. Whether you followed God, whether you didn't follow God, whether you lived a good life or you lived a bad life, everyone's in. Therefore, everyone wins. Everyone wins. No one should worry when they die. Then you have other worldviews and religions that attempt to answer this question about what happens to you when you die. Buddhism and Hinduism have elements of reincarnation. And that's the idea that uh, you might, when you die, you'll come back and live a new life as something else, kind of a an endless recycling of, of life, if you, you will. You might be reincarnated to live as something else millions and millions and millions of times, which I don't have much uh, motivation for. But anyhow, if you're a reincarnation believer or a Buddhist or a, a Hindu, uh, you believe that if you live a good moral life and you're an upstanding person and maybe you pay your taxes and all that good stuff, you're a good moral person, well, in the next life after you die, you get to bump up a few notches. You might receive a better life that has more power and more, uh, more abundance and more provision and, and just a better life overall. That's sort of your payoff for being a good person. Uh, but if you don't live a good life, well, then in the next life when you're reincarnated, if you're really bad in this life, you might end up being reincarnated into a worm. So now we're back to worm food and worms. Uh, you don't want to be a worm, apparently. Uh, but anyhow, that's honestly what they believe. Then you have another category. Uh, they try to answer this question, what happens to you when you die? And these would be a category of Christians. And I have friends who believe that, yes, they believe in heaven. Yes, they believe in hell. But there would be disagreement about what hell is like precisely. I have friends who believe, and pastor friends who believe, that hell is simply a place of annihilation. It's the annihilationism category. And that is, if you are not a Christian, yes, God will send you to hell, but he will essentially allow your soul to cease to exist. You just, you're just obliterated. All right, so there's no real punishment. Or they would also say, punishment in hell is only temporary. It is not eternal. Now, why would some Christians believe this? Well, they would say that the idea of hell being, and historically, biblically, hell is a place of eternal conscious torment that never ends. That's been standard Bible church teaching for 2,000 years now. 
But these guys would say, we can't imagine God being, you know, he's a loving God, so he wouldn't punish someone eternally. And that doesn't fit their God category. And in some ways, they're starting to edit what the Bible seems to clearly teach. And so that's a little dicey in my viewpoint. And so are you getting a bit of a glimpse of the different ideas that are in our world today about what happens to you when you die? The fact is, no greater question in the world. And so do we not, if it's the greatest question in the world, do we not need the wisdom of God to clarify this? I mean, this is a big deal. We need teaching from the Bible. We need to sort out exactly what he says in the Bible about what happens to you when you die. The idea and the question of eternity is a big deal. Where you spend forever is big. It doesn't get bigger than this, right? And so that's what we're looking at today. Here's the thing. Today, if, you're, if this has been a question you've been asking recently or in the past, this will be essential for you to hear and to listen and to stay awake for, all right? Furthermore, I'm hoping that you will use some of what you're learning today or you might be refreshed by some of this. This might be a reminder information for you, what, what the Bible says. And you can then take this as a mobilized missionary Christian. A Christian is a missionary. Missionary is a Christian. One and the same thing. We have a mission. And so take what you're learning today into your workplace and, and just carefully, compassionately, but yet boldly share some of these Bible truths about what happens to a person uh, when they die. All right. We're looking primarily today at John chapter 3 that Dave read for us. And here's what Charles Spurgeon, he was a large man, he was a great man, a pastor in the 1800s. He had a very small church of about 5,000 people. And it doesn't mean that we should listen to him just because he had a big church, but he was just a brilliant writer and a brilliant preacher. And here's what he said about John chapter 3. And I love this stuff. He says, if we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel... We should probably select this chapter as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And what is good for dying men is good for us all, for that is what we are. We're all dying, you see. And how soon we may be actually at the gates of death, none of us can tell. So here's here's what he's driving at in part. If someone you love, someone that you know is on their deathbed or they're dying or they're headed towards that direction, they might have only days, they might have only hours, they might have only minutes left to live and they don't yet know Christ, it is wise to start and begin that conversation just by reading John chapter 3 together, trying to apply and explain what this chapter is all about to them. In fact, if you only land on just one verse in the entire Bible, land on John 3.16, it summarizes the entire Bible and the entire message of what life is all about and why Christ had to come and why we exist. So, let's get into it. Here's the first thing we need to discover in our passage. Number one in your notes about this idea of what happens after death is simply, let's begin first with the fact that God is a loving, giving, saving, and rescuing God. God is a loving, giving, saving, and rescuing God. We see these massive, mind-blowing qualities of God in these most famous verses, John chapter 3, 16 and 17. This is where Jesus, this is Jesus not just speaking to the guy in that context, but he is speaking to you and I when you hear these words. So listen to Jesus. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Beautiful stuff. Do you see what we have? We have read a summary of the entire Bible's message. Again, if you want to summarize the entire Bible and what it's all about, John 3.16 is your Coles Notes version of that. It's a great verse to memorize. It's a great verse to take with you into your workplace, into your neighborhood, wherever you have a chance to talk about Jesus. Now, the context of this is a conversation that Jesus is having with a certain guy. His name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a member of the Pharisees, which were the ruling class of religious leaders in that context in Jerusalem. And so this was a guy that had huge portions of the Bible memorized. And as a religious teacher, as a religious Pharisee, as a Jewish guy, um, he would have been shocked Shocked, I tell you, to hear Jesus say those words being, God so loved the world. God so, he just would have been just insane for him to hear that. And it was shocking uh, to his Jewish ears because it was generally believed by the Jews in that day and age and by the Jewish leaders like these Pharisees, like Nicodemus, that God only loved one people group. Only one. Who would that be? That would be the Jews, the Hebrews. Because only the Hebrews, only the Jews, they were the elect ones, the elite ones. They they were the chosen people of God. They were the receivers of God's law and the keepers of God's law, dating back to Moses, Father Abraham, even back before even Moses. And they were the ones who had the, the special lineage from God, the special blessing from God. God favored them more than anyone else. And, and God only had a destiny and a future. For the Jews, that was their understanding. But the problem was, this was never the case from day one when we were made. This was never the case in God's mind. The Jews were simply God's instrument and God's tool through which God would show the world his love and show the world his grace and show the world his goodness and show the world his mercy to the rest of the world. And so Israel was to to shine as a light amongst the nations of the world, which were very much in darkness. So what this means is every single human being who has ever lived from the beginning and who will live to the very end, every single person is deeply, thoroughly, totally, tenderly loved by God, their maker. And that includes you. And so when God, sorry, when you and I, along with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, we have all sinned against God. The Bible's very clear. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have gone our own way to decide to call our own shots, live my life my own direction, uh, apart from God's way. Well, imagine when God sees us living apart from him, rebelling against him, disobeying his commandments like crazy. Imagine how crushing that must have felt and feels to God, our ultimate father and parent. Uh, This is the person in whose image you have been made and designed. And here we are just rejecting him. And this is the person who made us. And again, he he made us very tenderly. He, He knit you together in your mother's womb at the moment of conception and then put you together and gave you your personality and hair color and race and background and interests and passions, all of that together in your mother's womb. And now here you are, Despite God's great love, despite his great provision for you, giving you the opportunity to to live and draw on oxygen, 
Here you are, here I am, we've all done this, shoving our hand in God's face, despite him making us, despite him blessing us so richly. And this is why, beginning at the beginning, with Adam and Eve, our first parents, Genesis chapter 3, God rightfully cursed and disciplined us, just like a good parent. If you're a good parent, you discipline your kids when needed. And just like that, he disciplined us, but he disciplined us with something very harsh, but it's what we needed. And he he disciplined us with physical death, which is why death is as certain to happen to you as you are to be taxed by the government. It's going to happen. And the far more horrific part of God's rightful curse against humanity and our sinful action against him is something called spiritual death. The Bible describes it as the second death. Yes, there's physical death, but even more horrific is the spiritual death, the second death. And that is eternal separation, isolation from God, which I'll talk about later. Don't you see? You ending up in spiritual death, otherwise known as a place called hell, forever, that is not. That is not your heavenly Father's originally, original intent for your future or for anyone. No. Therefore, since no one loves you more than God himself, that's why God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, and he sent Jesus to earth 2,000 years ago, and he was sent as your substitute, your perfect substitute, to live your perfectly obedient life in your place, because you could not do that, I could not do that, Jesus did that for us. He lived your perfect life, and then Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, died your perfect death on the cross for all of your sins, so every single sin you've committed and will commit, and every single sin I've committed and will commit, have been placed onto Jesus at the cross 2,000 years ago. Again, Jesus never once sinned himself, but he willingly took your sins and mine onto himself, and then he was punished by God, forsaken by God, judged by God in our place so that we wouldn't have to be judged or condemned by God. And so Jesus died for our sins, and thanks be to God, what happened three days later? Jesus rose from the dead. God the Father raised Christ, and at that moment of resurrection, Jesus killed death, murdered death, And he defeated Satan's sin and death on our behalf. Now, back to our famous summary verse of the Bible. It's got a key word in there that I love. The key word is, in the the King James Version, it's whosoever. We don't say that very often, whosoever, so I'll stick to modern English. Whoever, 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 whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're Canadian, whether you're American, whether you're Filipino or Chinese or Taiwanese or whether you're Korean or whether you're Dutch or South African, whether you're a basket case, whether you're depressed, whether you're happy, whether you're a drug addict, whether you're a porn addict, whether you're an alcoholic or an addict of some kind, or maybe this, maybe you're addicted to being good and thinking God's going to love you because you're such a high, upstanding, good, moral person. Well, no, you're a sinner as well. That, that's almost the worst kind of sin is to think you're good enough for God because you're such a good, moral, upstanding person. You're, you are committing the sin of pride and self-righteousness in that moment. So even the good, so-called good people, whoever, whoever, whoever believes in Christ, trusts in him, gives your life to him, follows Jesus as king of your life now and as your Messiah, well, now, yes, you'll die physically, but you will not perish. Your death 
is a portal to life. When you die, you will experience eternal life with God in a perfect place. Isn't this good news? Thanks be to God for his great and generous and saving and rescuing love for you. For anyone, for anyone who will believe in Christ. You know, we we catch some glimpses of this amazing kind of love. Just glimpses of it. I believe it's parental love might be the closest thing to the kind of love that God has for us. And if you're a parent, you get this. And parental love is powerful. And I've talked about a few months ago, remember that dad who took on his son's conviction and basically confessed to the police that he did whatever his son actually did? And so his dad was then sent to jail in his son's place? This is often what parents will do. Maybe you've heard of that other parent. Um, They donate the kidney for the child, putting themselves at some risk. They give the the kidney to the child so that the the child can live. They're they're putting their lives on the line for the kid. And then you've heard of the pregnant mom who she's dying of cancer and the only way she's going to live is if she receives treatment for that cancer and chemotherapy and radiation and all the rest. Only way she can live. But she's pregnant. And so that mother, what does she do? She says no to the treatment. She says yes to death. She says yes to allowing my baby to live. And on and on it goes. Parental love is a beautiful thing. And you might say no love is more powerful than a love that a father has for their child or a love that a mother has for their own child. But I would argue there is a greater love. A love more powerful, a higher kind of love, a more amazing kind of love. In fact, no greater love has been seen or witnessed with the eye than the kind of love that God the Father has for you. And he showed that and he proved that. He sent his own son to earth to live your life, die your death, and rise again. No greater love than this. This is how much you mean to God. This is how much you mean to God. Let me close this point. I want you to never forget that God did not send Jesus to just send the world off to hell in a handbasket. Somehow that God or Christ would enjoy doing that to people. He's just like, I'm so tired of these people. They're such rebels. They're so annoying. Let's just send them all straight to hell. That's not why God sent Christ. The Bible's clear. God does not desire for anyone, anyone to perish. No, this is not why you were made. This is not why he sent Jesus to, to, to save us. He was not sent here to condemn you, but to save you, to rescue you, to adopt you as his beloved child into his own family forever. And then to give you this breathtaking future that will never end with Jesus and his people. Ultimate quality time with God will never end. Thanks to Jesus. Let me ask you this simply as I close this point. Where are you at with God? Where are you at with God? Are you at a point where you're finally open to receiving this great love with the empty hands of faith, this, this great promise that's available to you? Are you ready to receive that and turn to Christ with faith? If so, let's have a conversation after the service. Let's move on to point number two about this idea of what happens to you at death. And here's number two in your notes. Simply, at death, the souls of believers in Jesus go immediately into God's heavenly presence. At death, the souls of believers in Jesus go immediately 
into God's heavenly presence. And we see this truth in a few areas in the Bible. First of all, we, in our passage, let me reread verses 18 and 36. It says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has, he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, if you believe in and trust in and follow Jesus with your life, you have a great future ahead of you. You only have eternal life in your future. And by the way, let me just make this point. Eternal life is not limited to just a heaven, a future event. Like when you die, you go to heaven. That's when eternal life begins. No, no, no. The Bible's very clear. Eternal life begins at the moment you trust in Christ here and now today. It's not so much that you go to heaven. Heaven comes to you at that moment of conversion when you hand your life over to Christ with repentance, faith, and baptism. That's kind of how that works. And God, the Holy Spirit, he comes to live within you. Isn't that amazing? God takes up residence in you at that moment. And he allows you to experience his presence and spiritual fruit, the characteristics of God start to be displayed in you. And so people start to see his love in you and his joy in you and his peace in you and his patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in you. In other words, heaven begins now, here, today, at that moment that you trust and believe in Jesus. It's amazing. All right, let's hang with me. Do you remember at the beginning of today's message, I talked about lots of ideas and opinions about what happens to, your, to you when you die. And some people believe, in addition to what I mentioned, that there's a place called purgatory. And this is a classic sort of Catholic teaching. And purgatory is not a happy place. This is a, by the way, this is not a real place. There's no evidence in the Bible about purgatory. <laughs> but you go to purgatory, why? Even as a Christian, you might go to purgatory. Well, you go to purgatory because you still have to finish off paying for your sins. And so you go there. Once you start paying them off, however you do that, then you can enter into heaven. Again, there's just none of that idea in Scripture whatsoever. They're actually getting it from a book, uh, the book of Maccabees, which was written outside of the canon of Scripture. Uh, and so that's very problematic. Then other Christians believe that they don't believe in purgatory, but they believe wrongly that when you die as a Christian, yes, your body goes into sort of a, a status of sleep and rest as it, as it dies, but your soul also enters into a similar state called soul sleep. Have you heard of soul sleep before? Soul sleep. So your, your soul has a giant nap. It actually sounds kind of comforting if you think about it. Uh, a very long nap, okay, a dirt nap if you can. Um, and, and so that's interesting. And so basically you would wake up from that soul sleep when? When do you finally wake up from that soul sleep according to this idea? The day that Jesus returns from heaven, it's judgment day. Well then, bam, you're awake. Then you can continue on to eternal life, okay? So it's sort of this in-between state that is wrongly thought of. So let me prove to you a little bit, very quick. I can't do this thoroughly, by the way, but let me give you some evidence from Scripture that these things are not the case for Christians, uh, either purgatory or soul sleep. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Paul writes these words, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Notice here that Paul talks about being away from the body. What this means is, right now, 
You have a soul. You have a spirit, and, and, and your body are one together. Okay? You have a spirit. You are a spiritual being. And your soul lives within your body. And at death, what happens is the, the temporary separation occurs. Your body, your physical body dies. It's returned to earth. And then your spirit goes on to heaven. And then on that day that Jesus returns again in the future, that's judgment day, what happens? Your spirit and your body are reunited and that you are resurrected like Jesus was resurrected. But raised in power, so your, your body is transformed and, and more powerful than ever ever was before. That's what happens. But here's my point. Paul is alluding to, in this verse that we looked at previously, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to how at death, yes, your body will stay on earth, but your spirit, your soul, will immediately be at home with the Lord in the presence of God. This is a great hope for the Christian when they die, when you die. There's no mention of soul sleep. There's no dirt nap. There's no purgatory at all. Let me show you another verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. It says, Paul again, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, meaning than his earthly life. Again, he's thinking about death. There's no mention of any delay. There's no purgatory. There's no soul sleep. None of that stuff. He is, at the time of death, implying that he's going to be immediately in God's presence, in the presence of Christ, in heaven. One more verse that proves this, that a Christian enters immediately into God's heavenly presence at death. Luke chapter 23, verse 43, and it's when uh, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And uh, here's what it says. And he said to him, and speaking to the thief on the cross that he was crucified along with, today I say to you, truly I say to you, today you will be, today you will be with me in paradise. There it is. Does it get any clearer than this? Again, not only is this a breathtaking view of the grace of God that even criminals, before death, if they repent of their sins and turn to Christ, they can be saved. Does our view of God's grace, is it big enough to cover that? It should be. So it's never too late to come to Christ before you die. So that's breathtaking in and of itself. But he's also saying that this guy today is going to be with Jesus in paradise. Again, no delay, no purgatory, no soul sleep, none of that stuff. And this is why when your loved one, have you been with that loved one? They've been on their deathbed and they're a true Christian this is why, and they pass on. That's why we say, what do we say? When they, when they pass on, they're in a better place. They're in a better place. Often we'll say that whether they're a Christian or not. So that's not good. If they're a true believer, they are in a better place. There's no doubt about it. Thanks be to God that suffering is done. Thanks be to God the suffering is done. It's over. They're graduating to, to a much better existence. And so Christian... Be encouraged by this truth. Hold on to this truth. Fight for this truth. It is true. There's no reason for doubt whatsoever. When you're facing death or when the loved ones in your life are facing death, all right, hold on to this truth. Death can be scary. Really, it can. It can be horrifying if we don't hold on to this truth. But death is a massive upgrade. It is a massive step up. Do not fear death. It's like when you cross the line on a marathon. I've never run a marathon. Uh, a few of you in the room have, and uh, many of you, uh, some of you often run marathons. I, I have huge kudos uh, for you. I don't know how you do it. 
Um, I feel like life is just enough of a marathon in and of itself. But anyhow, when you cross the line at a marathon, from what I understand, um, what a relief. What a relief. They're just overwhelmed with emotion and joy and tears. It's good. And at that moment of death, it's like crossing the line at a marathon. Your pain is done. The suffering is done. The agony is done. The chronic pain is done. Cancer is done. And you run into the arms of Jesus and be encouraged that this is your future as a Christian. But let's close with a more serious and grave point for today. It's number three in your notes. What a great way to end a message, but it's important. Number three in your notes is simply this, that at death, the souls of unbelievers go immediately into eternal punishment and the wrath of God. At death, the souls of unbelievers go immediately into eternal punishment and the wrath of God. So this is very serious, very true stuff. A lot of people wrongly think that after you die, God's going to give me a second chance to repent, okay? Maybe in purgatory, okay? He's going to give me a second chance, and, you know, he understands. You know, he's very compassionate. He's very loving. He's going to give me a second chance. I'm going to bank on that, actually. Don't bank on that at all. Bad idea in every way. And one of the clearest places that shows that this is a very bad idea is Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells a parable, but this parable is very much connected to real life. And here's verses 24 to 26. Jesus points to spiritual reality here. And this is a bit long, but this is what he says. Really important stuff. And he called out. This is the, the parable. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. This is the guy who's in hell. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. Lazarus is the beggar who's in heaven. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Notice Jesus is speaking about an unpassable, huge, great chasm, kind of like what you might find at the Grand Canyon. I've never been there, but I've seen some pictures like this one. And there's a great chasm, unpassable chasm, a divide between heaven and between hell. And that once you arrive in heaven or hell, it's too late to sort of cross over at that juncture. But notice that hell is described here by Jesus. Did you catch that? Again, this is a parable, but it's pointing to spiritual reality. He describes hell in this analogy, this parable, as a place of fire. This is a place of anguish. Uh, this is a place, this is not a good place. There's no comfort in this place. There's nothing but ongoing, constant agony and pain. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And the point is, when you die and you're not a believer, it doesn't end well for you. There's immediate judgment, there's immediate consequence. We, from this verse, The implication is you go straight to judgment and straight to hell. Now, this sounds harsh. I understand. There's no worse place. There's no worse destination for anybody than a place like hell. 
This is a place, biblically speaking, I can't get into the various teaching on what hell might be like, but biblically speaking, it seems clear. It is a place of eternal conscious torment. It never ends. And you never die there. It's like an ongoing conscious state of death, if that can be something. So the question remains, why? Why is God crystal clear that this is the destiny of any and every person who does not entrust your life over to Christ and believe in him and believe in the gospel? Well, here's why. We go back to John chapter 3. Here's why this is a real consequence that God puts on people who reject Christ and do not believe in him. John 3.36, Dave read for us. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see this? Do you see where this is going somewhat? Don't you see, until you trust in Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. It's like it's on your shoulders. And why does God's wrath remain on there? It's because your sin has remained on you. There's a connection. Wrath of God, sin's still there. They go together. There has to be punishment for those sins. And either you give your sins to Christ, who was already punished for those sins, and the wrath of God is gone, or you choose not to trust in Christ, those sins remain on you, therefore the wrath of God remains on you as well. And many questions say, well, how could God send anyone to hell? That's not loving. How could he do that? You should know this, though, before you say that. It's not so much that God sends people to hell as much as people choose hell for themselves. They choose hell for themselves, and they ignore what God has done for them out of love. They ignore his saving hand and his rescue plan for them. They deny all that Jesus has done on their behalf out of great love for them. Nothing will get through to them. And so it's not so much that they are sent to hell by God, they they send themselves there. They choose hell for themselves. Let me close you, close by asking you this question. When you die, you probably will unless Jesus comes back. When you die, which future are you headed for? What do you need or how do you need to respond to find faith in Christ? Open those hands of faith to him, the empty hands where you offer him nothing but yourself and your trust. What will it take for you to see God's great love for you in Christ and all that he's done for you? Entrusting your life to Jesus is the very best thing you can do. Very best thing. Let's pray together. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to have a relationship with you, a relationship that saves us from your wrath, a relationship that forgives us and cleanses us of all our sins because of what you've done for us, Lord Jesus, when you lived our life, you died our death, and you rose again. We don't deserve any of this. It's only by your sheer grace, but we are grateful. Lord, use us to take this message of hope and rescue and love and generosity from you to those not yet Christians in our lives that need you, that unless they meet you, unless they turn to you, unless they repent of their sins and trust in you, It won't end well for them. So use us, mobilize us, empower us to share the gospel with clarity, with wisdom, with compassion, with love, but with boldness as well. Lord, we come to the time of the Lord's Supper, and it's our time of, it's our memorial meal to remember and celebrate all that you've done for us. I pray that we would come to this meal to confess our sins to you, to examine ourselves, to make right whatever is wrong in our relationship with you at this point. 
and just be renewed by you and renewed by your Holy Spirit in this moment of celebration. In Christ's name, amen.